Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went out and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God! Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. God. Amen. You guys can have a seat. He is risen. I'm not the hype guy, so I'm not going to make you do it over, but I don't think you really felt good about it either, so. Um, my name is Brian. If you don't, I don't know you, I'm one of the pastors here. It's uh, great to have you if you're a guest. Uh, we're so happy that you chose to worship with us on this Easter Sunday. Um, I, th- I wanted us to have to read the whole chapter of J- John 20 because I think for most Americans, they will kind of need to read and reread the chapter to be surprised that nowhere in the Bible do we have the Easter Bunny or um, sales at Nordstrom, um, you know, new brunches and excuses to buy new things and eat chocolate, like as if we can't do those things any time of the year. I don't know why we, that's kind of what we treat Easter as almost. It's like an excuse to have new things because we have an obsession with new Uh, We love new things. And so today I want to talk about a dawning of a new day and contrast what we think by new and what God thinks by new. Um, As I mentioned, yeah, Easter is this time where we, uh, you could call our generation the upgrade generation. Uh, We're always upgrading for more. I have to have the new phone. And then we kind of discard the old as if, like, even though it's not even old yet, we just kind of throw that away. Um, So we love, you know, new jackets and new clothes, and new hats, and we love to get new things, and new, new everything, right? And so um, the dark side of this is, again, we, we just throw away the old, but the way God does new is he doesn't discard the old when he makes something new. He actually takes what's old and makes it new. Um, and and um, I remember when uh, Ashley and I got our first, bought our first car together as a married couple. Um, it was a 2001 Nissan Altima. And, it, and it, it was amazing. It had leather seats. It had 52,000 miles on it, which was so low. And we got in it, and it had a Bose stereo system, a sunroof. This was, like, amazing. We saved up our money. We put down a down deposit. Our monthly payment was only $183. So good. We were just like so happy. You'd ride. It feels smooth. And then I was in seminary at the time, and I was working 35 hours a week as a college pastor, and then sometimes odd jobs, and one of those odd jobs was valet parking. And I remember someone pulling up in a brand new Porsche Carrera, and I had to park this thing on a big, massive hill. And I got in the car, and the, the, the thing was amazing. It had 152 miles on it. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to mess this thing. It was just so new. I mean, it, when I closed the door, the lights just went, like, slowly <laughs> dim. And 
my Nissan Altima, you close the door, and the lights were just like, done. They're gone. And uh, you would drive it, and it would feel nothing. And I'd get back in my Altima. I'd feel like every single pothole, you know, as I drive. And all of a sudden, this car that was new never is like, ah, the newness wore off, right? The newness is, is old already. Um, but when God makes something new, uh, he transforms us in a deep way that's different. There's a longing for newness inside of all of us because God desires to make all things new in a very broken world. Now, if you've grown up in church, hearing that kind of sounds like Woodstock from, you know, Charlie Brown, want, 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 new, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we live, as we heard this morning, just news and tragedy. We live in a weary world. We live in a world that asks why, why, why. Um, George Bernard Shaw says this. He says, the world, you see the world as, if, as it is and ask why. He says, but I imagine a world that's different and ask why not. And so what God does on Easter is he says, why not? Why not in a why-weary world? Why not new life? Why not he looks at creation and looks in space and says, why not create humanity? Like, why not? Let's just do it. But we live in a why-weary world. We live in between those two things. And so um, I want to begin with a phrase in John. Um, the Gospel of John is written by um, one of the apostles named John. And this phrase, Mary thought Jesus was the gardener. I love this phrase. Uh, because... It shows up at this empty tomb, and she thinks he's the gardener. It's a phrase that signals the brilliance of John's storytelling. You've got to remember that the Gospels were written decades later after the actual event. So they've had time and space to ponder what has actually happened. They've had time and space to ponder and to make connections. And John is one who's making cosmic connections. That this Jesus, he connects it back to the prologue that in the beginning was God and was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he basically hearkens back to the very beginning creation story. And these storytellers, they begin to have lenses, and that's why we have four Gospels, not one, because each writer is writing through their own lens of how they saw the story and how they interpret it. And the Gospel, according to John, is one of the most beautiful Gospels. And Mary Magdalene mistakes Jesus for a gardener, but it's like, it's a mistake that's the right kind of mistake because John is trying to show us that a new day is dawning, a new creation is here. So, for example, let me show you this. Saw this this week and never noticed this before, but just incredible. Jesus is truly making the entire cosmos new. That John tells us in the creation narrative in the beginning, God created, and he goes through the, the poem, of the, the narrative of the six, seven days that he created. And John understands this, that on Good Friday, it's this, he calls it the sixth day. And on Good Friday, it's when Pilate looks at Jesus and says, behold, the man, just like God did in creation on the sixth day. And then Jesus closes the sixth day on the cross and says, it is finished. And it is yesterday, Holy Saturday, quiet Saturday, in which we rest in which Jesus rested in the grave, in which all was silent, in which there was no movement, and it was a holy day. And then John 20, as we read, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, 
John says, that this is the eighth day. This is the day of a new creation. This is a, day, a new day dawning. And he commissions us to carry this new day. And so I want to ask you this question, why not? Why not continue this new creation work instead of asking why in a weary world in which we are just, um, I think we're just filled with compassion fatigue, news story after news story, but Resurrection Sunday asks us to consider the potential that we still live in in a dark world. Jesus said that, um, we talked about this in our last series, that you will, we will, the church will go do greater things than he ever did. And that just blows my mind, that we will do greater things. So, like, I don't know if you ever raised anybody from the dead before, but Jesus did that. So he says, we're going to do greater things then raise someone from the dead? What is he talking about? And so I think what he's saying is this, is that even if you, you, you this is just mind-blowing to me, because even if you don't believe in Jesus, by the way, like you, you don't really put yourself in the Jesus category. Like You kind of like Jesus has this category and we're here. But he's like, no, Jesus puts us in the Jesus category and says, you're going to do greater things. This just blows my mind. And what he's saying is, is the resurrection works like a mustard seed. That Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he planted the seed in the ground for resurrection cycle to continue from generation to generation of those who will ask, why not? Mother Teresa, why not care for all those who are poor and try to end hunger, right? Martin Luther King, why not? Why not stand up and bring a divided country together? Nelson Mandela, why not? all these years in prison, dream of a whole new South Africa and unleash it when I'm set free. Why not? So resurrection asks us to ask that question. And this seed is planted, and we, it continues, and then we're filled in this world with violence and weariness of, and hate. But like what Jesus does, in, including Mary Magdalene, as this first person to see the resurrection is this radical inclusion before we even invented the term inclusion. That you had a woman who couldn't even testify in the court of law be the first one to be the witness and the first apostle to take Judas's place, who truly was the first apostle to proclaim that he is here, the grave is empty. And um, I love this because you see this in the New Testament, the seed takes root, but it's never fulfilled. You see, Paul later on became an apostle. He was knocked off his horse, blinded, got up. The actual word that says that he got up off the ground was the same word for resurrection. And what did he say later in the Galatians as he was pondering the resurrection? He says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. That is not all in Christ all in Christ. So he was imagining the seed that was planted in the ground that would one day be a why not world. And then later on, Peter, Peter preaches this sermon in, in Acts, and then later he, he, he has this, this framework of how he sees God, this framework that he inherited, that there's clean and unclean, and there's food that's clean and unclean. He gets this vision at Cornelius's house. And this vision of this food coming down that's unclean and his ceremonially unclean. And he hears a voice from God that says, eat it. And he's like, what? And he hearkens back and remembers 
the, resu- the Jesus who told the stories of clean and unclean and begins to realize the seed of resurrection has been planted in the ground. Why not? Why not eat? Why not see that there's no such thing as clean and unclean? And his mind is changed and transformed. And so it would be thousands of years when these distinctions between male and female are being broken, these distinctions between race are being broken, these distinctions between hierarchies are being broken. And so Jesus didn't end the institution of slavery, but the seed of resurrection was planted. The seed was planted in the resurrection and that the mystery of the world, consider the patience of God, of how patient he is with us, that he would wait thousands and thousands of years with his people to even begin to see the seed begin to take fruit. And so now we live in this world in between the why weary world and the why not end of Jesus coming back. And that's where we are in our story. And so not only is this story cosmic, but this story gets deeply personal. And um, this story lays a claim on you. It implicates you because once you've heard the story, you have to ask yourself, what will you do with the resurrection? What will you do with this story? Will you ignore it or will you begin to press in with your doubts and question your questions? So resurrection is not so much of a story of us showing God how powerful he is so he can like force us into submission to believe in him, but it's the opposite of power, that kind of power. It's a divine power that says the world uses power to oppress or to harm or to control Jesus has used his power by strategically withholding it, showing the world what a nonviolent, sacrificial love looked like. And he laid down his life in love. And so this is the true power at the center of the universe, is the way of love of Jesus. The way of love. That he strategically withholds his power to show that you can love, you can forgive your enemies, you can see a new day dawning in a why not, it will be a why not people in a why weary world. And so um, three things that it personally offers us, I want to show you through these three characters is, number one, resurrection offers us a name. Number two, resurrection offers us uh, a, a, a breath. Thank you. <laughs> and three, resurrection offers us a touch. First of all, resurrection offers us a name. The very first person, as we said, Mary Magdalene, um, She's the first one. She's almost the exemplar disciple because she follows Jesus to the end. Um, Back in the narrative of Luke, it says that Mary came from this well-to-do city. Now, there's a lot of misteachings about Mary Magdalene that she, maybe you've heard that Mary Magdalene's a prostitute. Mary Magdalene never wrote that. Um, The gospel writers never wrote that. So let's just say that together. Mary Magdalene's not a prostitute. Would you repeat after me? Okay, we got that clear. Good. All right. So Mary Magdalene is actually this woman from a very luxurious city. But it says that when she met Jesus, that there were seven demons that he casted out of her. That she had this past, this hurt, this pain, this force upon her that she couldn't shake loose, that she couldn't get freed from. But yet Jesus freed her from it, and she followed Jesus the rest of her life. Up until, she's the one who truly listened to his teachings because he constantly was telling the disciples, I'm going to die and raise again. But the disciples flee and are no longer there. They withdraw out of fear. But she goes all the way to the tomb 
to anoint Jesus' dead body because she's so faithful to him. And she gets there, and there's an angel and says, he's not here, he's, he's, he's alive. And she's still in her chaos. Easter is about this messiness, this, this, this chaotic moment, the confusion. She goes, where did, who stole him? She's basically like, where did they take him? She's still thinking of theft. She's not even thinking of resurrection. And then all of a sudden, she sees this man, and she goes, oh, you're the gardener. Do you know where he is? And it's Jesus. And John's being playful, and it's like this, almost like this weird movie from, you know, a sci-fi movie or something. And, and then Jesus says to her, Mary. And it's when he says Mary and says her name, he, she recognizes Jesus. Because that's a word and a voice. When he's called her name so many times that she's familiar with that voice. And this morning, I want to tell you that resurrection offers you a name. That many of you, he's calling you. He's calling you by name. And this morning, will you hear it? Will you hear it for the first time that he's calling you, God is calling you by name to know who you are and to embrace him? Mary then tries to embrace him for as he was. She says, Rabboni, teacher, right? This is the the pre-resurrected Jesus. And Jesus says, you can't cling to me. She embraces him. He says, "You you can't cling to me because I haven't raised yet. Now, what is he doing? He's saying, you can't cling to me the way you used to know me. Many of you are still trying to claim to the God that you grew up with, and some of those things are very good. There's great things of what you inherited, the great things that you were taught, but God's saying there's a new day dawning in your life to open yourself up to a new way of seeing Jesus, not of old, because that isn't worth much just by clinging to the only way you used to know him. He's calling you to know him and for him to call your name again in a fresh so he offers us this new name. And how did she know this? It's the daily relationship that makes dramatic recognition possible. It's daily relationship that makes her dramatic recognition possible because she had heard that name over and over and over again. She had to surrender her old way of seeing Jesus as Rabboni to a new version that's been transformed. And Jesus' resurrection is such a powerful story that it, it holds these, these things in tension. Um, and so embrace the new day. That's what the Bible calls faith. It's for, God, it's for you to hear God's name, um, God calling your name, I mean, and to, and to embrace it. The second thing is uh, that the resurrection offers is a, is a breath. It's a breath. All of the gospels testify, actually, this is crazy to me, the actual start of the church was founded on unbelief. The actual beginning foundation of the church was every disciple in unbelief. I want you to think about that, how crazy that is. That's a miracle in and of itself. These disciples are fearful for their death. They're, they're, they're scared to death. They get into this upper room and they lock themselves in a room. They're in what's called a panic room. They're scared to death out of fear of the Jews that were going to come and they're, they're going to kill them too. They killed Jesus, they're, and now they're going to be out for them. They probably thought they stole the body. So they are fearful and scared to death. And think about it for a second. Think about how startled you would be. Think about how afraid and the mixed emotions you would have that, that there's this rumors of a resurrection, and they don't know what this means They've heard the rumors from Mary Magdalene, and they're just, they're, their dominant emotion is fear. And then they're greeted in that place of panic and fear 
that place in them that's locked off, that place in us. We all have our own panic rooms. We all have that place that's locked off, that we press down, that fear, that that walled-off place. And Jesus walks in the room and says, Shalom, peace be with you. And that's what resurrection does. That you can't have new life that's truly life without first entering your own panic room, without first acknowledging your own fear. They are hiding and afraid of their life. Imagine what it feels like. You know what it feels like to be betrayed or even to betray someone else. They're feeling like Jesus betrayed them. They're feeling like they betrayed Jesus. How could I have done this and betrayed this one I call my Lord? They probably feel so much shame. They feel stained. They feel a lack of worth, unworthy of love. They're feeling this pain and wondering, what do we do with this news? And this woman says that they've seen him, but we're afraid. And it is that tone that Easter addresses in all of us, that place of fear in all of us, that panic room in all of us, that Jesus comes, that we must open up and say, you're welcome here. I need to hear the voice of peace. And so we all have the, I have these locked rooms. We, I, I, you know, in my own personality, I can... I can want to win one over with, with, with trying to present myself, you know, for admiration, right? We all have these strategies that we cover up our, try to cope with our pain. Or maybe, maybe you uh, just want to have fun and an adventure to cover up with your pain. Or maybe for you, it's a sense of order. And if you can have order, you cover up your pain. Or maybe uh, others of you, if you can just bulldoze over and control others, that helps you not deal with your pain. We all have these panic rooms in which we need to let the resurrection Jesus say, peace, peace. And then what's the next thing Jesus does in the passage? He shows him his his wounds. Incidentally, that's the same thing we need to do in our panic rooms. That we get together in community and say, here's my wounds. Here's my panic. So that the peace of Jesus can rest over us. That's what Easter is about that God's peace can rest over us, that we can be fully at peace. I love the story of one person I was listening to that works in a hospice that was talking about what they learn by seeing people die. And I've been, I taught on Ash Wednesday, so I've been teaching on resurrection, so I've been thinking about this just death and how our culture just clouds over death. We even no longer have people dying in our own homes. We send them away because we don't want to have to think about death. And what, they said, what this hospice worker said was that um, the stages of death, there's denial, but then there's this acceptance of seeing someone that in which nothing in the world can affect them because they're at complete peace. And when you can come to that place, that's when you know you're fully alive. Um, another TED Talk uh, that I listened to was this uh, EM, EM, EMT, Michael, uh, Michael O'Reilly was his name, and he gave a, a TED Talk called um, am I dying? And he, he's an EMT, and he's, he's, he helped with like hurricane, hurricane victims, and he's, he's seen people on their last few minutes of life, all of his life, and he's trained in this, like, it's called the impending doom, um, when they, they see someone and they know they're going to die. And, and he says, he always gets this question, and it's, am I going to die? And he said that they're trained to say, no, 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 you're okay, you're going to make it. And then after that, it's usually the sense of panic that comes over them of, like, what's going to happen? This, this. And he said one day he, he, he had a motorcycle victim that just crashed, and he knew within probably about five minutes this person was going to die, and he got that question, am I going to die? 
And he decided to do something completely different from his training. He decided to tell them the truth. And he said, yes, you're going to die. And he said this panic didn't happen. What happened was a sense of calm and acceptance. And he said he began to do this over and over again from there on point. Every single time he saw someone that was about to die, he said, told them the truth, yes, you're going to die. And he says the reoccurring themes, no matter their background, no matter their beliefs, were, were three things. One was this weird need for forgiveness. This need for forgiveness universally, when they knew that they were face-to-face with death, they wanted to know that they were forgiven, that they were forgiven of all their wrong, that they had a life of no regret. Number two, they would ask, will you remember me? They wanted to be remembered. And then the third thing is they wanted to know that their life had meaning. Universally, all three, the same stories over and over again, need for forgiveness, remembrance, and meaning. And we, re, we, we, can, we can learn the same thing by just looking at Jesus' encounter with the disciples. What does he do? He says, he breathes on them. He offers them a breath, which is weird. I've never intentionally like breathed on someone. Um, I never like, use that. as a, I, Hopefully I'll pop an Altoid in before I try that. Um, but Jesus intentionally breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. What is he doing there? He's, he's, he's imparting to them the resurrected life. He's imparting to them a new day. He's imparting to them, you are a why not people in a why weary world. You are the why not people of God. He's imparting to them the peace of God. And what does he do? He says, I send you out. I give you a purpose. And here's the purpose. Go announce. Next slide, if you can. He says, here's your message. Um, He says, Uh, Sorry, it's not up there. He says, I want you to go and preach the good news of forgiveness and go forgive others as you've been forgiven. And so the EMT and Jesus' learnings are just the same. That resurrection offers you a life of peace in the midst of your panic room. And he offers you a place of remembrance where you will be remembered and your legacy will be a why not people of God that we can step into But even in hearing all that, you may be thinking, yeah, 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 I I still have my doubts about it. I think I heard that in a song once. Um, And we see doubt creep up in Thomas. And the last thing the resurrection offers us is what we see in Thomas. And Thomas kind of gets casted as this villain in our Christian culture. He's, He's often known as Doubting Thomas. Later in John, it says his name was Thomas, also known as Didymus, which is also why he went by Thomas. Didymus is not a very good name. But I bring that up because not just to get a cheap laugh, but because both Thomas and Didymus mean twin. And it's kind of inappropriate because Thomas is all of our twins. We're all of Thomas's twins because we all have our doubts. If we're all honest in this room, we all come in this room with doubt. And Thomas actually didn't doubt Jesus. We often think he doubted Jesus. He doubted the testimony of the disciples. He got in the upper room and he says, I won't believe until I've seen his hands. I've touched his side. Then I'll believe. Because he wasn't there the first time in that upper room. And then he, they, eight days later, no wonder he doubts their testimony because they're locked in the room again out of fear after they've seen the resurrected Jesus, which just brings me so much comfort and hope in my life. <laughs> that they would see the resurrected Jesus and still be in their panic room 
because we've all been there. And yet, Jesus meets Thomas, and, and Th- Jesus comes again and says the same thing, peace, shalom. And Jesus appears to the disciples, and Thomas is, is, is doubting, and he, and he says, I can't get to this place. I can't get to this place of belief. It's just too much. It's too much for me. I just can't. i got to see. But the thing is, is Thomas's doubt leads him to an experience where Jesus says, here, touch. Feel the gaping hole in my hands. Touch the side where the spear moved. You could put your whole hand in there. And Thomas does. And he says, my Lord and my God. And so often we kind of give doubt a bad rap. Because doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite of faith. Doubt is the double-sided coin of faith. Doubt is this place where we can be, that's, that's what faith is. It's like, I'm not quite sure, I'm going to step out here, I'm not sure if this ledge is going to hold me, and we're doubtful, but I'm going to go do it anyway. Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of not what we can see, but what we cannot see. And so if you are in a place of doubting, if you are in a place of not sure, you are in the perfect place, a perfect match for Jesus. You are not in a wrong place, you are in the perfect place. Where Jesus can say, I want to offer you an embrace. I want to offer you an embrace. Faith is about trust and risk and seeing what happens. And Jesus offers that to Thomas. Such good news. And so he's in this place of disappointment. And I wonder this morning if that's you. If you're in this place, if really deep down, your life is just being defined by disappointment. That if your faith, if you're doubting, if I wonder if it's because you grew up with a God that said, hey, if you worship me, everything will be great and lovely and you'll have no more pain. And it sounded like a used car salesman, but then you looked under the hood of that message and saw there was no engine in it and you said, forget this, I'm out of here. And for you, you've been sold that message and you said, you know what, I've just been disappointed by God too much. Why would I ever step back into this? Or others of you are just, your, your career is being defined by disappointment. Your relationships are defined by disappointment. What resurrection offers us is a new embrace of a God that's never been like the God you conceived of before. One that is glorified but has wounds. One that is pure and holy but yet made of dirt like the humanity. One that has glory and honor and has ascended to the most high but came from the womb of a woman. This God-man is the one who proclaims, I have new life to you. And so this morning, I just want to encourage you, would you accept that? Would you receive that? No one else can make you choose that. No one else can cause you to do that. God does not force himself upon you. There's two things, as I close, just that we need in the human life. We need to be loved, and we need to receive. We kind of have this weird thing as human beings that we also need someone to receive our love. Right? Like if you do a bunch of things for someone and they like you're like and they don't receive it, you're like, what's wrong with my love? <laughs> what's wrong with the way I love? Have you ever experienced that before? God Jesus died and rose again. And he's and when we don't receive him, he he's is something wrong with my love. Well, this is my love to you. This is my the way of life, the way the universe works is the sacrificial love, nonviolent love. That gives victory. And I'm giving it to you. And he wants to know, will you receive it? Will you receive it? Can we pray together? It'd be great. Jesus, we thank you that you offer us a new name.
And I don't want to pitch this as an invitation as if like believing in this resurrection for the first time because we know the resurrection happens a thousand times in our lives. But John writes this gospel as a cosmic but personal gospel. And now we've been received this message. And I wonder what would the gospel according to you be? If you were to embody this message, what would the gospel according to you be? Will you stay in your compassion fatigue? Will you continue to ask why in a weary world? Or will you receive what is good news and present that good news to this city and say, why not? Why not embrace? Why not truth? Why not beauty? Why not love? Why not life? Why not radical inclusion that goes beyond